A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time, they would be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them their names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine, and so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now, God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord and king, the king. He's appointed your food and your drink, and if he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel asked the guard, whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. That's right, Margo. I don't know how you can read that story and not come away thinking that the Daniel fast is just where it's at. It is the God-ordained vegetable and waters. Hey, have you all heard of that, the Daniel fast? There's like a diet book written called the Daniel fast. And it's like, the folks are like, this is what the Bible says. Like, if you if you want to lose weight... If you want to become your best self, you do the Daniel fast. But it said they were fatter. Right? <laughs> ah, 
they, I think, I think they have a, a New Life translation of that verse. It's like means fitter instead of fatter. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Lots of olive oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which uh, that's my sermon for the day, you guys. I... <laughs> that's right. We're gonna have vegetables and water together. No, no wine for communion because that's off limits. Uh, okay. Well, I want, let's talk about this story. There are there are two dimensions of this story, and uh, we could talk. For a long time, I'm sure, just about our memories of this story. For those of us who might have gone to like Bible school and VBS and kids camp, this is uh, this is a popular children's story. Uh, and and with all Bible stories that are kids stories, there's more going on than what I could ever see when I was a kid. So these two dimensions that I want to talk about, I'll describe as the foreground and the background. Um, the foreground, this is the foreground in this staging area, uh, the table, the communion area, right? It's what you can see. It's what presents. It's what's up front. And then um, you have the background back here, right? It, it is, it's, uh, it's behind things. It's less obvious. It can blend in. So let's start with the foreground of this story, which is um, at the surface, a story about Daniel and identity. Um, this is a story about resistance to the powers. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has captured Jerusalem and takes some of the Israelites from the royal family, the nobles. So this is a, a privileged class of Israelites that, that the king draws the finest young men that he can find. And these young men happen to be Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who we know more popularly, those other three, from the the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're, they're Babylonian names. Um, and like a good imperial power would, they provide college scholarships to these young men to learn the language and the culture of the Chaldeans. And it, it's not primarily a philanthropic you know, generous kind of impulse to bless these poor refugee youth. Um, this is rather cultural assimilation and the bolstering of imperial power. Um, it's so that the king can add to the wisdom quotient of his advisors. This is a farm league for multicultural imperial advisors for the king. Uh, the, let me take the best of this this foreign power that I have now occupied and add them to my arsenal of wisdom. It brings to mind Canadian residential schools, uh, which the Catholic Church and the European colonial powers uh, put indigenous kids in, in these boarding schools in the 18th and 19th centuries. I didn't know this, but uh, the schools, the last school was shut down in 1996. I was in high school when the last residential school was shut down. Um, it, basically, the, 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 the idea, the, the impulse for these schools was to train indigenous peoples 
this is the Christian kind of colonizing perspective, out of paganism to train them out of barbarianism and into civilized European culture, uh, to teach them the language and customs, and, and by doing so, to so immerse them and disciple them in Western European culture and Christian, Western Christian European culture, that their, that the, the backwards indigenous culture was kind of erased. Um, so Daniel and his friends as a part of this, they even get new Babylonian names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, which reveals kind of what's at stake in this story for them, uh, which is identity. Uh, cultural identity, religious identity, spiritual identity, personal identity. Uh, their names reflect something about their cultural commitments. Daniel's name, mean, all of their names say something about their God and their, their commitments, um, or, or maybe at least their parents' commitments as they name them. Daniel means my judge is God. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Nazariah means the Lord has helped. And instead they get these nonsense Babylonian names. We have no idea what these new names mean. You know, it struck me, my, my resource, uh, uh, this is actually, it, it's Ted's resource that he's used before that we're using for this series is by C.L. Co, who is an Asian American scholar. And he goes by C.L., I, I would guess, ostensibly because uh, it's too hard for normal uh, American white folk to pronounce his actual name. Um, it, it presents easier. His real, his name is, uh, Chung Leong Sio. And it just reminded me. I mean, even in our, our commentary resource, the way that like, like the, the dominant cultural frame kind of squeezes out all of the difference and the difficulty, softens, smooths it over, tries to assimilate it so that it's easier for those at the center to, to pronounce or use it or say it or whatever, right? But there's identity in that difference. And there's, there's spiritual identity for Daniel and his friends. So in this story, Daniel decides to resist the loss of his Jewish identity by opting out of this one particular thing, the privilege of sharing in the king's meal plan of food and wine in order not to defile himself or corrupt himself. That's his rationale. Now, what's interesting is there's nothing about the food and the wine, per se, that breaks Jewish food laws. This is not a matter of conscience on the the religious ceremonial food law level. I mean, maybe the food was pork. Okay, I can't eat that. That's against the law or whatever. But wine was not against Jewish food law in any way. So there's something else going on that we're not quite sure. Why, why is Daniel opting out of this food plan in particular? Um, what, what's the, what's the particular point of resistance? It's not totally clear. Maybe it's just a, a personal decision of Daniel's. Uh, it's, it's a statement or a matter of conscience. Uh, perhaps, I find this winsome, perhaps it's an act of solidarity with the rest of the Jewish captives, none of whom have access to this kind of food and wine. And so Daniel is saying, you know what? 
here's a way I can hold on to my identity. It's to come into solidarity with all of my Jewish brothers and sisters and to remember that we're, we're a people and we're here in a foreign land, in a foreign culture, so that I don't lose myself in the midst of, I'm learning all the language, I'm learning all the cultural, I'm being immersed in this new culture and context. Maybe the way that I can resist is to come into solidarity with my brothers and sisters in the Jewish people in Israel and and eat the same kind of food that they're eating in captivity. And so Daniel and his peers get permission to have a diet of vegetables and water, and they end up unexpectedly, kind of against the laws of biology, physically stronger, uh, fatter, <laughs> uh, wiser than all of their classmates. But not only that, they're not just stronger and wiser than their classmates. They're stronger and wiser ten times, Daniel says, than the best that King Nebuchadnezzar has. Uh, God apparently honors this act of resistance and elevates them in the king's court. So think about this story, this, this foreground story, this story about resistance to the powers. In what ways is this story instructive for us in our time? In what ways is this story of resistance and identity, this story of Daniel, in what ways is it instructive for us in our time? What points of connection or dynamics do you see that have crossover to our lived experience now? I clicked it for you, I think. Testing. Ah. So uh, I don't know that I have a true answer to this per se, other than to observe, um, again, going back to sort of the, the childhood nature of the this being a children's story or feeding into it, there's a lot of uh, Christian escapism for me that, that bubbles up uh, mm. from this story of, you know, just be in the world and not of the world and separation from the world and and things like that, that, I don't know, I'm wrestling right now with trying to see this with new eyes um, of what I feel would be a more practical application of, of that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of one of these, uh, I still get just kind of little moments like this of like, oh, this is a part of my childhood that I may be still in the process of setting aside that I hadn't even, you know, realized I was still setting aside. <laughs> Uh-huh. That was the first thing that came to my mind too was just um yeah, no don't watch R-rated movies, don't mm-hmm. um swear, um don't and like I bought into all of that like hard as a kid. And I mean, um, now I do enjoy the occasional swearing, um, and the occasional R-rated movie. Um, Did you get that YouTube? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think it is, it is something that you have to discern because 
there is something to be said for not filling your mind with um, things that you're like, oh, I can't unsee that now. Mm. Like, is this really the best use of my time? And I think just trying to be, I think the word, um, and I've been saying this to my kids lately, is intentional of, like, we will let them roadblock. Does anybody know what Roblox is? Okay, it's the bane of my existence right now. Um, but, like, we had let our kids just kind of roam across Roblox, and um, I don't like it, but it's like we've unopened this box now, and it's hard to put it back in. But what we have been doing is they're like, okay, you have to choose three of these games. You can't just play one for a little bit and then go on. You're going to choose three for this week. And you have to play only those. And they were like, what? That is so hard. And, um, but they did it. And I don't know, it's just, I think instead of mindlessly just going along with what everything does, with how everything goes, we just need to have intention. Mm. Yep. Thank you, Megan. Um, yeah, I'm on the same lines as them. It just makes me think about, I don't know, the extreme, the extreme rules and, you know, not being poisoned by the world and so it's, and I feel like I'm I, I'm against all those people who do that now <laughs> in my heart. Um, you know, I I just grew up with you know like we we don't go to Kmart now because of this, and we don't go to Circle K because they sell porn magazines inside, and we don't you know like. The list, mm-hmm. because we are not of this world. Um, uh, yeah, 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 I don't know. And so I'm like, oh yeah, is there something good that can come of, I don't know, figuring out boundaries or, I don't know, yeah. what's good or what matters and what does not matter and, you know, just being hoity-toity and all that. I don't know. Yep. Yeah, I, I appreciate all. And if, if others of you have comments, there's still space for that. But I just want to reflect on the thread that I'm, I'm feeling here that um, uh, a, a lot of, like, conservative religious subculture, um, if... Uh, really leans deep into the uh, extreme of like um, defensiveness and distinction from and critique and challenge of culture. Like our, the surrounding culture can't be trusted. Uh, it's it's evil. These are evil times we live in, and and so um, we need to retreat into this enclave of difference. And I, I hear some of, I hear reaction to that. Like, that doesn't feel exactly right. And I, uh, because, I mean, uh, 
Well, humanity's created in the image of God. We see this beautiful world we live in. I mean, we see hints of God all over the place, right? We see, we see things in culture that seem pretty daggum beautiful, actually. Uh, and, and so there is this, uh, I, I, this other dynamic, I think, that I, w- I like want to point out that I think we maybe those particular subcultures kind of missed. And that is like, wow, there are things about culture that we can really embrace. I think it's interesting in this Daniel story that that Daniel's resistance was at this very tiny point, a very, a very deliberate point, where in, in the broader context of him being completely immersed in Babylonian culture, learning the language and the customs, like he 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 doesn't have the luxury. I mean, he's a captive. He doesn't have the luxury of of retreating into difference. But but he's like, in the midst of that, he's like, I don't have any power to choose anything about anything, but maybe this one little thing. I can remember my history and my people and who I am. That's a very different dynamic than that kind of rhetoric coming from a people who are at the center of culture, uh, perpetuating some cultural hegemony to say, this is how it should be for everybody. And it, if it's not this way for everybody, this is the way that we're lightness light in a dark world kind of thing. It, does that jive at all? Like, I think some of, I think we're, we're rightly reacting to the defensive posture of Christian communities to culture. Now, I think it swings too far probably in the other direction to say, well, well there's nothing about the world or culture that we should like resist. Cause there is evil and injustice, right? But we also, uh, we need to make space for beauty and things in our culture that we can embrace. And I feel like there's space in this story to do that, right? Daniel's learning the language, and uh, author of Daniel doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Sarah? Yeah, I was going to say something along similar lines of, um, I mean, he, uh, all four of them excelled in that system. They didn't separate themselves. Yeah. I mean, they they did the learning and they did the and the they did the working and you know and it says that they were better than the others. You know, it's so like they were applying themselves yeah. in that space and and learning that culture and learning the language and learning the the uh, history of that space. Yep. Um, and uh, as opposed to just you know like it was yeah like you said just this one area where they said. You know, we want to remember where we've come from in this way. So. Yep, that's a great point. Any other thoughts? Julie Kaiser, from the back. I guess I just don't know enough about what what were they doing that they weren't supposed to be doing? Like, what was so... Um, <clears throat> Like when I think about all the analogies that people would use for this today to be in the world, not of the world, like what was it about the Babylonians that was so wrong for, does that make sense what I'm asking? Like what were they, um, what were they bucking? I mean, besides the food thing, were they giving it like, so was learning the language and acclimating to the culture, was that, would good Jewish boys and girls have said that was even wrong? I don't think so. I mean, I think about Jeremiah. Is it Jeremiah that talks about seeking the welfare of the city that you find yourself in? And that Jeremiah is in the same kind of context of exile and oppression by a foreign power. So it's very much in like Israel's 
DNA to like be a blessing and and flourish where they're planted, even in oppressive um, conditions. Like I I think uh, I think it really is like the food and drink. I mean, it is this small way of saying that you may be the king, but you're not the king. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Like it, uh, and it is interesting how this story is employed by, again, folks who have way more power and privilege, who I think feel the loss of privilege, um, and respond with stories like this to say, we need to resist the culture because we're, we're losing our privilege. Really? Either as white people or as straight people or as whatever, right? Whatever that is at the center of culture. I don't know if that makes any sense, Julie. It does. I don't know if my question made sense, but I just, um, that does make sense. I just am like, were they, did they, I mean, clearly they knew they were being oppressed and they were in exile, but were they breaking tradition or laws in other ways? I don't know if that does make sense. Well, what I was wondering is if it's just like, just the idea of being whitewashed. Right, that we're trying to erase, let's try and erase the core of you as much as we can so you can just blend in to here. Like, you should learn English, you know, if you could be as white as possible, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and so not that, you know, that they're necessarily being asked to go against their core beliefs. It seems like they're like, can you just not be you and be like us? And they're like, we are still here. That's what it makes. That's good. Yeah, uh, this story shows us kind of the way that that whiteness or any kind of dominance that stands at the center, the the effect and the the impulses that the way that functions for folks that are on the margins of that. So I um, was re- reflecting on this because, I'm, like I said, in my original, I'm trying to see this with new eyes and, and set aside just my initial knee-jerk, you know, sort of contrarianism to it. And, you know, so I was, I was thinking, I am vibing with this idea that this story is about identity and your foundation and even when the cultural things are moving against you to understand the the what you hold most closely um, and in some senses to resist at, at some level um, maybe the dominant power structure of that day. And so I was trying to think of a modern example for myself and what popped into my mind was uh, the first time that I had the opportunity to go to the Pride Parade um, was in, I believe, 2018. And we were holding up signs that said, you know, dad hugs and mom hugs. And we had a whole group with us. And it was, it was an, you know, emotional and, and interesting experience for me. But in particular, within that, I was walking to, I think, go get a bottle of water. And um, a, uh, a woman stopped me and she said, hey, I'm, I'm here with the newspaper. Uh, I saw your sign. Could I interview you? And I kind of thought about it, and I was like, I mean, okay, yeah, you know. But for me, there was this, at this moment, this this juxtaposition of, 
okay, if I do this interview, my name is going to go onto, and this was a tiny thing, but for a while, if you Googled my name, this article showed up yeah. uh, right below my professional work page. Uh, mm-hmm. And all of these things, and so there was this moment of this connection of my, you know, my career, my online presence, my, you know, all of these things, and then someone asking me to put my name beside an interview, um, you know, at at this pride parade, and and I agreed to do it, and she just said, "Why are you here?" And I was kind of like, "That's a hard. Why? Why am I here?" And the answer I came up with at the time was, you know, I'm here because I am feeling frustrated with the narrative of my church backgrounds and the way that we interact with the LGBTQ community. Um, and I feel powerless to change that. But at the same time, I felt like this was a little step that I could take to change that, mm. to offer up mom and dad hugs at the Pride Parade. Mm. And, uh, and, and they ran that quote. Um, and it's not, I don't consider myself a modern day Daniel. That's not the takeaway of the story. I have more and more questions than answers most of the time. But as I'm trying to wrestle with that, uh, and, and put myself into their shoes, that was a moment that I felt, uh, prevailing cultural forces around me. Yeah. Uh, some of which I didn't agree with. Um, and maybe, just an example of, of if I was to think about healthy counterculturalism, it wasn't about avoiding a gas station. Um, but, but it, was, it was about standing in solidarity yeah. with folks who are oppressed and suffering right? and who are mistreated. And I, I mean, I think this Daniel story, that's a great example of, of the kind of impulse that this story inspires. Because Daniel is privileged class. He, I mean, he is a part of an oppressed people. Sure. But he's a part of this noble class that's right. in the king's court. And he takes a risk to hold on to identity and, and to hold on to solidarity with his people who are suffering at possible expense to himself. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, um, that's good lessons for folks that want to be allies. Yeah. That, that, sure. that's what we do. Like we, we don't have to do this. I mean, we, and we do it sometimes at the risk of the perception of those at the center that we might poke through our act of resistance. Uh, but yeah, and we see Daniel doing that. What a great story. Thank you, Daniel. I mean, Miles. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> okay, so Charles, you said something right before Miles spoke, and I had to write it down because I knew I'd forget if I didn't. Well, I didn't actually write down what you said, and now I'm kind of forgetting what you said. <laughs> But, Don't worry, I've forgotten it too. Um, <laughs> um, just I'll tell you exactly what you said. But um, something that I'm thinking about in like our present day is as like the dominant culture, which is mostly like white people, as like they're starting to see more languages coming into the US and more you know, like all the differences and once like, white people that are in a position of power start seeing that, you know, like, there's more POC than there was. And they're starting to see, like, oh, there's a lot that they work harder to put them back into a place of oppression and, like, back into a place where they don't think that they can, you know, be equals or or get to that same point and have the same privilege. Um, hmm. <laughs> um Sorry. 
Um, but like that, like white people start to panic when their power is threatened mm. and opposed. Mm -hmm. And even if it's just something that they see and like, they're like, Oh no, how am I going to make them think that they can't have that? You know, like expecting people to learn English, you know, especially with like going into a place with the majority of people speaking Spanish mm -hmm. and expecting them like going in there and expecting to be able to speak English and find someone that understands you, you know, like, yep. like going to the pupusa place around the corner and, you know, like, like my dad, um, there was one time where he went and picked them up and he came back and was like, Jen, like, can you go next time? Because like, I hated that. I didn't like I, that. I wasn't able to like speak Spanish and mm -hmm. help, you know, like, mm -hmm. Like, as white people, like, acknowledging, you know, when I'm walking into this place of, I don't understand your language, and, like, how do I not expect you to speak English? Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you for naming those dynamics. That's right. It is. That's, um, it's how whiteness as a, as a power category kind of works. Uh, the perceived loss of privilege is really, uncomfortable and sometimes it feels like oppression it's not but sometimes it feels because it's it's a loss yeah i, I want to talk about the background with the two and a half minutes i have left you know here we go focusing on the foreground you know you can't yeah we yes okay let's hear it john hi yeah when you talked it reminded me of the settling of the west you know, most of the Americans were on the east, and then there's a gold rush in the 49ers. Everybody went across the country to get there, and then there was Oregon Trail. There's another gold rush up in Alaska, but then all that got filled up. So here's the middle of the country they had to fill was full of Indians, and the Indians were attacking, and so along come the, the, the soldiers that killed all the buffalo. They rounded up all the Native Americans onto the reservations, and then they took their children of the natives, put them in English schools, made them dress and talk the language, prohibited them from speaking their native tongue, prohibited them from exercising their native religion, right? And even now, they're in some of those tribes, they're getting back to learning the language and learning the customs they were lost that long ago. And the British did the same thing in India and everywhere else around the bloody world by getting the young people to come and, and dress like and talk like and act like British. Because the British are, are, are from God, of course, and they're right, and everything else is uh, of no consequence. Uh, so the background, uh, the background is a story, humming in the background, is a story about uh, how God works. Who God is and how God works. Have any of you seen the uh, the Invisible Gorilla video? Do you know what I'm talking about? It is a it's a psychology social psychology experiment about selective attention, and there's a team of folks in white shirts and a team of folks in black shirts, and it says something like, um, "Count how many passes the team in white shirts makes in the next 30 seconds." And so you watch the video, and in the foreground, you're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You get to the end, and it's like, 
They passed it how many times? 13 times. But did you see the invisible gorilla walk across the screen? You're like, what? So you watch it again, and while they're passing, a gorilla walks in the background like, You know, and then Lee exits, you know, the other side of the stage, and you can completely miss it for all that's happening with the, the actors in front. God is the invisible gorilla sometimes. Not so invisible in this telling, uh, because, uh, you know, this is Israel's story. I, do, I want us to see God in this. This, this story is set, uh, amid a theological crisis. Because for Israel to be in foreign captivity means that uh, there's a question about whether God's promises um, have failed, right? Where is God? In the, Israel was promised land and temple, and all of that is gone now. So has the plan of God been aborted? Where is God now? Um, most of the contents of the house of Yahweh, of God, have been incorporated now into the house of a foreign God. And so this story is fundamentally about how God is at work in the midst of this crisis. God, in this this story, this chapter 1, is the main character, the main actor. And we know that because this whole story is framed at three particular points by God's action. The same verb in each spot in the narrative. God gives... God gives, God gives. Um, three times God gives. In verse 2, God gives Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. You wonder what God is up to. Well, uh, it's not just Nebuchadnezzar's intentions to subjugate the Israelite people. God is actually giving them over somehow. There's something going on with redemptive discipline. Um, I, I like to think of it in terms of Israel... Um, uh, was choosing hell, and so God let them have it, uh, and and allowed this foreign power to take over. Verse nine, uh, the the um, the translation obscure this, but it's the same verb for give. It talks about how God gives favor and compassion from the palace master to Daniel when when he um, is asking if he can uh, do a different diet. But the what's what's being said underneath our English translation is that God is giving God gave Daniel grace and mercy, and he happened to do that from the palace master. So that again we see God's agency. Verse seventeen we see God gives knowledge and skill and insight to Daniel and to to his buddies. So God fills them um, with wisdom. A couple of things to notice about God's giving. The first is that God's agency works alongside of and sometimes simultaneously in the opposite direction of human agency. Um, God's, God's agency kind of like piggybacks on top of human agency. That's how God works in the world. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, captures Israel with evil intent. God piggybacks on that agency to intend that for something else. He's working crossways with Nebuchadnezzar's agency. Um, God extends mercy and grace 
through Daniel's palace master. So Daniel's palace master has favor. He likes Daniel. He's like a person of peace. God's like, let me piggyback on that and use that as an expression of grace and mercy for Daniel in this situation. And then finally, Nebuchadnezzar um, intends for Daniel and his buds to bolster his imperial power. Well, God piggybacks on that and makes them wise and uh, gives them longevity, even past Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it reminds me of the Joseph story. You know how Joseph, and there are lots of echoes in Daniel's story. Joseph is captured, taken to a foreign land in Egypt, and his brothers sell him into slavery. He later tells them, well, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. So again, God's agency piggybacks on human agency, whether it's evil intent or good. And God, uh, this is why God is crafty. I don't, it's, uh, it blows my mind the way that God functions and weaves in and out of our decisions and agency. Um, Greg Boyd calls it Aikido wisdom, divine Aikido wisdom. You know what Aikido is? It's like a form of martial arts, Steven Seagal in the movies. Like it's a, the principle of Aikido is you use the energy of your opponent Against them, uh, they're punching you, and you 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 balance with it, and they're like, you know, they. It's not like aggressively, offensively violent. It just turns the power of your opponent back onto themselves, and that's kind of like how God works in the world. God piggybacks on human agency to accomplish God's purposes. It's really fascinating. I think that's what Jesus, what God does in Jesus on the cross. This aikido uh, aikido wisdom where. God in Jesus allows the powers and principalities to exhaust themselves and just take it out on Jesus and destroy Jesus. And and God piggybacks on that evil agent intent and agency to bring liberation and redemption and resurrection. That's how God works in the world. Um, one other thing to notice about God's giving is that God in this story, and maybe all the time, God triumphs over evil and over evil power, not by military might, uh, but through the wisdom and quiet faith of God's people. Especially the lowly and the seemingly powerless. Uh, notice how the chapter ends. Daniel, Daniel continues there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 70 years later. So, so the story is saying, in, in this first chapter of this whole book, Daniel outlasts Nebuchadnezzar. The people of Israel outlast Nebuchadnezzar. And it's because of what God is doing in this story. Which I think maybe the takeaway is just a little bit of hope that when it looks like a dumpster fire and when it looks like we're overwhelmed by dominance and hegemony and power that, that God is at work and that God can piggyback on that agency to subvert it, to turn it back on itself. Uh, to, to bring goodness through the quiet actions of resistance of folks like Daniel who say, you know what, I'm opting out of that because I want to be in solidarity with my people. And God turns that, that ripples that into something that's really good and shows God's power. Uh, you know, we could talk more about how you might process that. I wish we, I wish we had more time for that because I could, I could geek out about providence all day. That, that's not the Calvinist God, is it, right? That's not the like coercive power and determinism kind of God. It is, um, it feels more loving and gentle and it's not forceful. God goes with the flow and yet somehow 
works God's will out in the midst of all of these competing agencies of ours. It gives me hope. Hope it gives you hope.